Hey folks, my name is Andy Sitto. Welcome back to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar Podcast. My guest today is Grammy-nominated audio engineer Nick Sullivan. He's also the co-founder of the Keep Recording Studio and Consonance Music Publishing right here in Denver. All right. How's everybody doing? We're on episode 60-something, 65, 66, I don't know. These episodes seem to be racking up really quick, which is which is cool. And I'm getting to chat with so many awesome folks. My guest today is Nick Sullivan. Um, he's somebody who's been in the Denver music scene forever. He grew up in Steamboat Springs, eventually moved to Fort Collins, and then Denver shortly after that. Um, went to Metro State and then went to CU Denver for music, got a got a music degree from CU Denver. Um, toured with a band called American Relay, a blues rock punk group, and they toured a whole bunch for um, a couple years. And we, we chat about that, um, all the all the hardships of indie touring and what was different back when he was doing it versus now. And then uh, after that, he started really getting into sound recordings. He worked uh, with John Macy for a little while, and then. Started his own started his own place, the Keep Music Studio. It's a studio on Broadway here in Denver, if you haven't heard of it, the Keep, and also Consonance Music Publishing. Um, so something that's really unique about Nick, as I mentioned in the interview, is that he's fully on the creative side and also fully on the business side, and he seems to have a really good mind for both. Um, he's an accomplished producer, audio engineer, whether it's live sound, front of house, or... Um, you know, engineering records, mixing, mastering. He does it all, and he's really good at all of it. Um, he's got a couple Grammy nominations for a Los Lobos album he worked on back in 2010. He's done Front of House for Nathaniel Rateliff. He's done remote recording for um, Moby, Sonny Landreth, 21 Pilots, and, uh, and does just a whole, lot of, a whole lot of records here in town. But then aside from that, aside from the creative process, he's also very, very involved with the business side of things and music publishing. And Nick has some wonderful insight on that, on what artists need to do um, when, they, when they write a song, right? Even if they're not going to go for publishing, what they need to do when they write a song, um, you know, to, to register it. And then talks about publishing companies, what they do, why they're important. And also the difference between an artist, you know, a live performance artist and somebody who writes for publishing. And if you're unfamiliar with this term, because I know um, there's a lot of non- non-musicians that listen to the podcast, um, music publishing, licensing is basically where you get your song placed in something. So I might send my song, my new song, Mona Lisa's Everywhere. I send it to Nick and he goes, hey, this is cool. Um, and I know this Amazon movie that's looking for a Beatles pop song, sort of like that one. So Nick... Nick has the connections, he's going to go pitch it, or somebody on his team is going to go pitch it, and this Amazon movie says, hey, yeah, that song's perfect, we're going to use Mona Lisa's Everywhere in our movie. Um, And so Mona Lisa's Everywhere gets in this Amazon movie, and it's great, and it might just be a 10-second instrumental section of it, or it might be the entire song in the end credits, whatever. Um, But then the money gets paid, they are they're acting as as my as my publishing company, so they get their publisher's share, um, and I get paid too. I'm the I'm the writer. It's my song. Um, so anyway, there's all kinds of different different contracts, but just 
into, and I'm no expert on it by any means, but just that's basically what publishing is. A publishing company, licensing company, gets your music placed or in some cases performed by other artists. But anyway, so he's got a publishing company here in Denver and and has gotten some placements for a lot of local artists, for artists that are recording at the keep. Um, but it's an interesting it's an interesting concept and there's not a whole lot of publishing companies in Colorado. There's tons of them in Nashville or LA or whatever, but I don't think there's a whole lot of them um, in the Denver area. In fact, I, I can only think of two or three off the top of my head. Um, but one of the things, going back to a minute ago, one of the things Nick chats about that was really interesting is the difference between an artist, somebody who is writing their own music that's deeply personal to them and they're trying to develop that artist career, the person that you go see live, um, the person that you buy tickets for at the club, the difference between that person and the person who is writing music specifically for pitches, specifically for a movie or a commercial. And, and that's just, it's a different production process. You know, the, people get in a room and say, okay, a lot of people are asking for pop songs with claps about home, about the subject of home. So we're going to write that song and try to get it in a commercial or a movie. There's lots and lots and lots of people that do that for a living. It's very competitive. Um, and that doesn't mean that artists, you know, like myself, can't get songs placed. Lots of them do, but it's a, it's a different thing. It's a different world is all I'm trying to say. And, and Nick chats about that um, in the podcast as well. So it, it's, a, it's a fun conversation. I was really excited to finally get to, even though it was just cyber, get to meet Nick. Um, and connect with him. It was great. He's just a, a ball of knowledge and an interesting dude. Um, what else was I going to say about Nick? Oh, yeah. This might be the best remote audio quality of all time on Middle Class Rockstar. 60-some episodes in, all remote for the last year. Because he did something that we should all probably do. He recorded his vocal on his end, right? He is an engineer, of course. I recorded my vocal on my end and now here we are so you're getting the you're not getting the zoom quality audio um so yeah you won't lose any audio quality here <laughs> when the when the interview starts like we do some weeks so um anyway that's that and i'm looking forward to jumping into the interview folks if you want to support the podcast in a monetary way i am now on patreon at patreon.com slash andy S-Y-D-O-W. And I put up exclusive content for my artist career and podcast career. I do live streams. It's just a way to keep things going. And you can join for as little as $3 per month. If you can't help out in a monetary way, no worries at all. Times are tough. What you can do is give me a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, excuse me, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a huge, huge help. And I would appreciate it very much. Quick thanks to our sponsors. PQ Mastering. Patrick at PQ Mastering puts the finishing touches on this podcast. And for any of your audio or restoration needs, go to pqmastering.com. Also, Narrator Music. For simple and affordable licensing for sync, go to narratorrf.com. There you go. I'm going to make that easier for me later. <laughs> Hey, Nick, what's happening? Looks like you're sitting at your studio. Hey, man. Uh, yeah. How you doing, Andy? I'm doing well, thanks. Well, thanks for having me on the show here. Excited to talk. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's great to it's great to finally um, it's great to finally connect. What have you been What have you been working on the last couple of weeks? Um, man, some exciting projects. I'm working with this talented uh, artist named Daniel Carrillo, who's in uh, a band called the Maslows that I, I did a live recording earlier this year, like a live stream that went really well. But he's got some solo stuff that's really rocking that I've been enjoying. Kind of like you know the guys playing drums like a heathen playing guitar like a heathen playing bass lots of great vocals so it's been real fun uh, working with him kind of a one-man show um got another artist kind of a first-time artist that's uh really blown me away named ben westland um kind of like some folky pop uh stuff with a little hip-hop influence so that was kind of fun you know really simple instrumentation but lots of vocal overdubs uh yeah just finished an, a really cool album with a band called Ava Fauna, who's, I think this is the third album I've done with them, and you know, they really enjoy watching artists kind of get grasp the power of uh, home recording. So a lot of home recording, a lot of synth production at home, we'll do drums and bass here at the studio and then mix, but just seeing those guys evolve as they get more comfortable recording at home has been really, really awesome, and... Uh, yeah, so those have been like the latest projects. Um, so, how does that work with owning a studio and the continuing rise of home recording? Um, so, I, I do the same thing. <clears throat> I have a local studio in town, Third and James, that I go track things I need to track at. But I'm also doing a ton of stuff, you know, right here behind me as well. Does that? Um, it sounds like you encourage that. Does that take away from business at all, or is that a good thing for you? I think it's a good thing for the art, which is always, I guess, my main priority. Um, we've been pretty accustomed to that seen, and, and saw the writing on the wall years ago. I mean, and even you know myself, I'm able to get a lot of work at home done these days. But I think it's just really elevating the art form. I mean, and, and you know, for some artists, it's having that intimacy of recording at home is, is not, doesn't translate to the studio sometimes. And so just being able, you know, and I recommend, I try to, you know, guide them as best as possible to get the best recordings. But um I do think there's a sweet spot there, and I think it's going to kind of be the way things go for, well, if not forever, you know. And that's where even just you know coming to cut drums, some certain specific instruments really help that a recording, and you know like doesn't seem to dictate you know the quality anymore um, with the with the technology available at home. So yeah, I'm a big fan, and um, you know just getting over the the uh, learning curve of sometimes just the exports in logic is about the hardest thing to do <laughs> so yeah um, yeah but no I, i'm a big fan and even like this band of fauna the, the this the keyboard player is named mark penner Howell, and just watching him being able to really get into a synth work and spend all this time and you know just give me the stereo files and, and it just is like of course he's giving me like 12 stereo tracks now but uh, they're just all dialed in. And, you know, even on the reamping side, too, like this Daniel Carrillo guy that I was just mentioning, he did all his guitars at home with the DI, and then we just reamped all the guitars. And, you know, that cuts uh, cuts down the recording time quite a bit. But the efficiency and, you know, just kind of being able to get it back into the speak into a speaker, so to say, really helps the recording out. So, yeah, it's it's the modern world, man. And, it, you know, luckily we're, yeah. we're fairly diversified in, in the business we have in the studio. So, um it hasn't harmed us by any means. Are, are there any particular instruments where you tell people, no, you definitely want to come in and do that here instead of, instead of trying that one at home? 
I would just say drums. You know, I think that's the one thing that's really hard to to get a great sound in a basement or a small room. Um, yeah. But beyond that, I mean, yeah, like you know, DI guitars work, and then we can you know reamp it with three half you know stacks in the, in our tracking room and get as loud as you need to be. But that'd be the main thing. I think vocally, you know, like even with an SM7 these days, a lot of people can get some great recordings, and uh, you know, that's that's just the only thing. Sometimes it's like, yeah. All right, try not to jump and down up on your floor, you know, the, 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 your second-story right. floor, and kind of, or at least put a high-pass filter on it so I'm not hearing the, the rumble, but right. those things you can overcome. Yeah. So before you had the Keep, um, which what, you opened that up in 2014, is that right? Yeah, 2014. So before all that, if we go way back, you are a Colorado boy, but you're from uh, a small town mm-hmm. way far away. The Steamboat Springs. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, what was that like growing up in, in the small town, in, in a tourist town in a lot of respects? How did that impact you musically? I mean, it impacted me quite a bit uh, just because, you know, when I was like 16, I started working in the ski shops and met a lot of, you know, East Coasters and all, all kinds of people from all over the country who were either, you know, straight out of high school coming to live the ski bum life or had just finished college and living the ski bum life. So I got exposed to a lot of music that I don't think I would have beyond like, you know, the Big Head Todd and the Monsters and the Freddie Jones band that are still playing in Steamboat today. Um, So yeah, quite a a bit, you know, and I I think a lot of the East Coasters that I I hung out with really got me some some great music back in the day. Um, And and I wish I could say Steamboat's live music scene is as good as it was back then, but it isn't. They don't have as many venues. So there was a lot of cool music that I could sneak into, too, through through the same kind of connections. Um, but, yeah, yeah, growing up there, I couldn't have asked for anything more. Um, it's, it's a beautiful place uh, to live, you know. And I, I need the city living now. I don't think I could ever live there again, but um, love to visit. My parents are still there. But, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a really blessed childhood growing up there and um, still have a lot of good friends from, from those days. Yeah. Yeah. And what was the decision then to leave and move to um, that Fort Collins and eventually Denver and, and do music school? Did you consider anything else first? No, I mean, just kind of the normal trajectory of a post high school uh, kid, which was just I went to CSU for business, you know, thinking, you know, not knowing exactly what I wanted to do. And I play I, I played guitar and was really into music, but I really even never knew about CU Denver's program. So, yeah, I went to. CSU as a business major that really didn't um, produce very positive results on the school side of things so I dropped out and then came down to Denver and started going to school at Metro and took a class from Ron Miles his jazz history class which was just an amazing class and of course he's just a legendary dude and we got to know each other and you know I was recording digitally at that point in time with some drum machines and, and you know since just kind of messing around with MIDI stuff for the first time and kind of said, well, you know, there's a program at CU Denver and I had no idea, you know, and CU Denver, I, you know, wasn't on my radar even as a school coming out of high school. So um, right. did some research there and, you know, luckily found that program and, you know, had graduated and uh, I think it kind of set the, you know, set the path at least to, to continue in the music industry. Is there a lot of, uh, there's probably a lot of the same teachers there now as when I went, as when you went, right? I mean, who were some of the influential teachers for you when you were there? 
Uh, well, it depends on what year, but Roy Pritz, I was lucky to, to get a couple years with Roy, Rich Sanders, um, uh, who else? those are the two main ones. Um, God, I can't remember, Sigmund Rothschild was another teacher that was there, so I don't know if any of those guys were there. Unfortunately, you know, we lost Roy and Rich pretty quickly after I graduated, so that was kind of sad. But I, I, I was, you know, Roy just had so much knowledge that it was old school, you know, kind of coming along through that school in the, at, that, at the university at that time was just the beginning of digital recording. So they were still, in, still in doing stuff on the Otari tape machine with the Neve console that came from Caribou yeah. that barely worked. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> sure. and, but Roy had all the, you know, analog synthesis knowledge that I still am so lucky to have gotten inside his brain for that kind of stuff because he just inspired you know, a, lot, a lot of his students to just learn more and even remind us that there's so much to learn. You know, not, not you know, you can't really cover everything in college. Um, right. But yeah, there were some really cool teachers. You know, I got I had a seminar with Chris Mickle, who was like a legendary live recording engineer, and he was really inspirational because he was like just you know first and foremost in the industry and working. So that was kind of nice to access some people who are in the industry and you know just like remote recording again back even in the late '90s, early 2000s was still you know DATs and you know, DA88s, you know, but really hardcore, you know, not like today where you get to run a Cat5 cable to the stage, you know, to even run copper to the, you know, to the recording right. trucks. Um, but yeah, I, I really you know, was lucky to be there at that time. Um, and even with the gear, you know, being able to work on that Neve console was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I, I definitely had a good time. And I was lucky, I think, you know, I don't know if I would have graduated college if I hadn't found that program, so... Right, right, and you were you were still you were still performing a lot too, right? I mean, was the initial thing when you when you went to CU Denver like I want to be a recording engineer, or were you in the I want to be a rock star? Uh, well, I mean, it, it became more of like, hey, I can actually get a degree in this and graduate college and make my parents happy. Um, but then I did end yeah. up meeting uh, my bandmate in American Relay. And, at CU Denver. So I went to school and then kind of like the band formed while I was in school. Um, so we kind of started playing shows at that point in time. So I, you know, I kind of didn't really know, you know, I'd always, you know, I do idealize, Oh, it'd be cool to play in a band and, you know, but really even had no clue what that was like, uh, until we did it coming out of college, you know, and, uh, but yeah, it was, and that's why, I, you know, that, that school and just being around other musicians and other people passionate about the industry was, was really cool and just kind of inspiring to go do, you know, and that was a, a very interesting time because, you know, the fray was coming out. Um, I think even Were the, you in school around the same time? Yeah, I was that? in, yeah, so that was, I think, I can't remember, I, I was in a couple classes with Isaac and just seeing how that kind of stuff was going around, even the flow bots and it was cool to just see some people actually doing some things out of the school. And, oh, and one thing for sure, one of my favorite teachers, he wasn't on the engineering side, was John Kellogg, who's also, yeah. he's now at uh, uh, Berkeley. So he's their head of music business now. And he was, a you know, again, a legit, you know, music industry lawyer. And just the information he passed on was so great. And again, expiring. You know, you see, you meet these people in the industry, you're like, oh, this is, you, these are great individuals. Um but yeah, so that's kind of, yeah. I started the performing kind of at the end of, you know, I think my like senior year there. Um, Did you guys tour some? 
we ended up touring yeah for like you know it took us a couple of years we toured about three years um pretty hardcore mostly just the western u.s um but definitely got that that lifestyle and, and glad i did it back then um it, you know that was purely that was the the uh, golden age of myspace and booking shows uh, through that uh, social yeah. media platform and just kind of all those sure. things that happened. I mean, I look back at it now and even just talking with some of the artists about like, you know, having to keep up, you know, I think that's what's so tough about today's industries. You just got to keep up, you know? And I, yeah. I'm yeah. like, I was even before MySpace, you know, like, you went, yeah. You know, yeah. So, um, but yeah, toured for three years, a lot of fun, but kind of, you know, burnt myself out in, in that role. And I think, you know, we were trying to run a business, but never really got there. But uh, had a lot of fun. Blues them, rock, right? Yeah, kind of punk blues rock. Uh, yeah, very R.L. Burnside influenced. Ah, uh, uh, the Mississippi Hill Country stuff. Yeah, yeah, I still love that stuff quite a bit. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a good run, man. We get, got to do a lot of great things, and um, you know, I, I still think it's it's got to be so much tougher today. There's just so many less venues. You know, I think seventy five percent of the venues we even played back, and this is like two thousand seven through nine don't even exist you know long gone yeah. so uh, i commend yeah. anybody who's out there touring and even post-covid uh, you know what that is going to look like you know and right um, so hopefully those venues or will have venues to play in different towns well so what was the touring landscape for you guys were you just playing uh the the closest bar room you could find for some free beer or i mean were you doing clubs? Did you get some opening dates for national acts? What was the tour circuit like for you? You know, it was uh, just a couple of really good places that could pay for the whole tour. So it was all of the above. I mean, I guess, you know, we still yeah. got some good opening sh slots eventually on the road. But, um, you know, we had uh, a great place in Salt or Park City, Utah that, you know, could pay for, you know, the one the third of the whole tour in one night, you know, and play in rooms like that. And we just got lucky. And it was, you know, again, just doing a lot of research where everybody else was playing at, emailing them, constant, you know, badgering until either they say, hey, we, we don't want you to play or, you know, we'll figure something out. But anywhere, house parties, I mean, back in those days, it was kind of whatever you could get 20 bucks for gas. Um, yeah. But, yeah, and, in, in, you know, I think for us it was, <laughs> it was pretty much like Reno, Park City, Utah, and Los Angeles would probably be the only paying gigs for the first couple, uh, you know, tours that we did. But luckily, those would pay enough yeah. that we could get through the rest of the tour. But there was definitely some times where we run out of money. I mean, our first tour, we we uh, didn't make a great decision by going on the road for like sixty four days. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> so yeah. Well, but it was the only way to make all the legs work, you know. And then we kind of figured out, okay, <laughs> you can't do, you know all the western cities in one trip so we started figuring that out but yeah there was a one point i think it was like somewhere around missoula montana we were in a rental rental van and uh we didn't realize that it, like at a month and a half they would just re restart the rental and you know drain our account by like two thousand dollars and we're scrambling for looking for change to you know get gas to get to the next show so we had to learn those lessons the hard way but um <laughs> yeah know. yeah how many dates did you do a year uh, probably like 150 for those, you know, time periods. I think we can't, yeah, I, as many as we could, you know, and even Colorado sure. was really good to us playing steamboat in the mountain towns, which, you know, I, I don't even think today would be as friendly to rock. It's, it's all bluegrass and jam bands now. Um, right. But. So a after, a after a couple years of that, um, 
was it just being beat up by the road that said, you know what, I want to stay home. I want to open a studio. I'm going to stay here in Denver. No, I think it was it was a combination of a couple of things of just getting burnt out and also just kind of realizing that to really make it as an artist, you have to have so many other pe- people working for you and in some senses dividing up that pie. And you know, we had started getting some management inquiries and you know, just touching that, feeling the water out for for that. And, and it definitely looked, it was like, okay, wow, if we get, you know, get more help, we're going to almost make less money, you know, because, and that was, I think, for sure, the reason why we were able to stay on the road for so long was that it was just two people. And so, <laughs> you know, yeah. we definitely, the financial splits were a little better, but, uh, you know, it just, it, it just feeling burnt out, you know, we'd, we'd tour, toured so hard and it's, you kind of live on a separate planet from people, you know, like, cause when you're out on the road for two and a half weeks, you're, you know, Hey, you, you in a town gone tomorrow. But then when you come back home, you're just like, so beat from not sleeping for two and a half weeks. You're like a zombie for a week. And then you come back to the world. And then in, you know, we were, we were basically trying to get back on the road as quickly as possible, partially because we were trying to make a living from it at that time as well. And just had to, but you know, I just kind of felt like I hadn't seen my friends for like three years and, you know, uh, just the physical sure. brutality of all that. But, um, you know, and I think just as you get older too, it's like, Oh yeah, I gotta try to find something a little more consistent. But I had also started, you know, I'd been recording, I started working at this studio called summit road studios before American relay went on, on the road and started working at a professional studio and getting into it and making albums. But, um, you know, playing in a band and being out there all the time really did, it did help engineering, you know, just the exposure from that and got a lot of gigs from just knowing people in other bands and just playing the circuit for so long. And I was doing live sound as well. At that time, I had started kind of working at the Larimer Lounge and was like their Sunday barbecue live engineer for like the first couple of years of my career, probably like when I was 25. Uh, Yeah. So luckily I had other things to jump into was the only thing. And you know, it just right. kind of, even just two guys in a van for three years, you know, that you kind of run its course, <laughs> but, uh, um, absolutely. Yeah. And so, go. so when you came, when you came back when you came off the road, I mean, what was, what got you to open up your own studio? I mean, did, you did some other things before. Well, it was actually John Macy. Uh, Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, John, at that point, I had actually started being able to work at John Macy's place. He had gotten back into Kerr Macy, which he was in that building, like, back in the 90s. And so he was back in that that um, room, which was three rooms, and um, kind of, you know, had, had room for other people. And I kind of just started helping out. Um, and that that kind of happened right out at the end of American Relay, and so his room, you know, started, he started picking up momentum again. Of course, he's you know been working in Denver for decades now and pretty well established. But he was very gracious, just let me kind of come in and do work, and even you know like do things around the studio and create hours that I could use for other sessions. And you know, I already had a couple of projects that I could bring in, so it worked out really good. There was kind of a a cool co- uh, collective of engineers at that time, which is where I actually I met Jeff Cannon, my my business partner today. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was kind of, in, you know, seeing him trying to run a business and, uh, you know, there's uh, a composer, God, I can't remember the name, who's, who was working there. Again, so it was just really inspiring to be around these people and even just, you know, 
Macy's got some great gear and being able to jump into that and kind of just being the young guy, you know, that can, you know, do whatever it takes to, to get any opportunities that that's, that's what I did. And, uh, so that's kind of where, you know, I started, I guess my professional engineering career was there and getting projects. And then, um, what year was that? That was like 2009, 2010. Yeah. So, um, and yeah, so hung out with Macy's place, but you know, that point in time the writing was on the wall that we probably needed to start our own thing and i wanted to run my own business and and jeff you know we had gotten along really well and jeff has a, a long had a long career in los angeles that he took with him when he moved back to denver because he had a kid and uh so we just started working on projects collaborating on some things um and got along quite well and he's he's a very business-minded in you know individually individual thankfully and uh so we we actually wrote a business plan because I, I knew of a potential investment possibility. So out of that is when we, we wrote a business plan and got the initial funding to do Consonance Productions, which was our original first company. Um, so okay. that's, that's how we started our own business. And then, you know, we originally started at Broadway in Mississippi in an old um, thrift store building. Um, so just kind of bootstrapped it to get started. And then, you know, that, that's kind of just where we started what is now the keep in consonants publishing. Um, right. Which is kind of interesting because I think about the business plan we wrote, it, we're just really kind of starting to do that now. <laughs> as yeah. in, And as any business plan, I think there's a lot of theoretical, you know, uh, like kind of elements of the business that we put into play. But really what would happen is what we do, just ran a commercial recording facility, you know, and then slowly started producing artists. And then that's where it kind of became clear that producing artists was just one piece to the puzzle and you know that's why we started the publishing company i guess after that is because just for like hey we've got all the capacitance to do it you know anything we need to to produce music why not be on the other side i guess or get the other copyright involved you know so so you engineer produce mix and master through um you know under at the keep yeah but then you also have um, Constance Publishing, which is that the other segment of it. But so you you do a little bit of um, of everything. You do it all there at the studio. Yeah, yeah, and I guess that's kind of what it's taken to have a career in in the industry. Um, right. I'm really lucky, I think, to be able to do all that, and I'm, I, I'm fortunate to I enjoy all of it too. And I really, you know, the publishing side of things has been the most uh, unnatural part of this career at this point, um, because it's just so administrative and so business that, you know, there's really no creativity on that side. It's just uh, numbers and registrations. But I, you know, being able to now, you know, put the whole picture together and, and, you know, I think the publishing company is about five years old now. Um, Yeah, it's something I enjoy. I have to kind of separate them. You know, I don't, like I try to be creative and mix and do audio like three days and then just business on, you know, two days a week or something. So I don't, sometimes it's hard to, to jump back and forth between the two, but, uh, yeah. And, and yeah. I think we've been lucky to be in Denver. I guess part of the reason we started is I just didn't see anybody registering songs, you know, and I, that was me in my band too. We never registered a song till we were well and done with until <laughs> we started right, the right. publishing company, like, you know, four or five years later, but, um, that was the main reason. And just kind of like, you know, I think both Jeff and I knew that if we were just like solely, you know, music based and music only, and our only way to make money was through bands that we would probably not survive. And I would, I would say that was, that is the truth. So, um, you know, cause even through the pandemic, some of our music publishing revenue was just like 
very helpful. Um, and, you know, and, and I, I kind of look yeah. at all of our publishing revenue. We never expect anything from it. You know, it's not like, oh, we, we're going to expect this money. It just kind of always comes, you know, whenever you don't think it's going to come. You and get a check sometimes. Yeah, right? just, yeah. Yeah. Even on the sync side of things, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, you, you can never predict those things. So, um, and I think it's interesting that you are, you know, that you and Jeff both are fully involved in both ends. You're very in the creative and you're very uh, business minded too, which probably all, all people in the music industry should be, but um, I would agree. I mean, yeah. and, that, and I guess that's where it's even just what we try to, you know, like promote through our artists is just that you know the business you could say is is more important than the art at this point you know and because right. if you might while you might have great art if you don't have the business side of things nothing really ever ha you, you just lessen the possibility of things happen and then if things do happen usually the you know someone else is leveraging your your lack of knowledge on that you know especially when it comes to yeah. copyrights and publishing and so so I right. just try to encourage, you know, even just if people to acknowledge that it exists, because like I look at myself, you know, when I was, a, you know, on the road at the American Relay trying to make a living and scrape, you know, like, you know, the only money I was making was from playing live. It's like, wow, I could have, you know, submitted our set list for the 150 shows a year and all these other things. And, you know, uh, right. As I mentioned before in some other interviews, uh, Amy Abrams, who works at 7S Management now and who I went to school with in at CU Denver, um, you know, years later, she's like, well, don't you remember? They, they always, we all, like, you know, all the music business was, you know, how important publishing was. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to play guitar in a band, you know? And, and I right. think even sometimes <laughs> sure. with CU Denver, that's, I, I love, I see, you know, definitely some great people coming out of the music business, business program, but sometimes on the, uh, you know, the artists or the, you know, performing side of things it's still the same way where it's like i just want to get signed you know and it's like okay do you know what that yeah, really yeah. means you know and right um, right <clears throat> but that, well, it, I, it, I relate to that yeah. I, I didn't i didn't pay attention the way i should have in my audio production classes and i often think if i could have taken a few of those courses a few years later i'd have been ready for them yeah that's a tough thing about college you know you're just so young and just you know like in and it's and that's why I I even feel like for music publishing I'm still learning every day, you know it is yeah. such a deep well of just procedural things mostly you know but um, it, and that's what I enjoy about it you know I I love engineering you know I'm very passionate about it but just you know just for the sake of even just the you know the the health of the business to know music publishing is just I, I really enjoy just learning the ins and out of it and continuing to just go oh okay I know this most favored nations what does this mean okay. <clears throat> and yeah. even just being able to put that into real use, you know, with contracts and those things. And um, what are you best at? If between all the things that you do, if you had to do one, uh, I don't know. Uh, I try to be as best as I can at everything. I, you know, which could be a detriment, but um, you know, I, I still just like producing and tracking albums you know i think those are that's what i have the most fun doing that i mean i love mixing and, and mastering too but there's just something about being in a room with musicians just creating and you know just kind of ha helping artists fulfill their their visions and dreams you know on a sonic side of things is is probably what i enjoy the most i mean i still enjoy playing music i miss playing live yeah. I don't miss anything about the hustle and bustle of playing in a band or anything, but I mean, just getting on a stage right. is for sure something I miss. But um, 
you know, and that's why on the publishing things, I've just getting a couple sinks in the last year has been really rewarding because it's been a culmination of like four or five years of work. And, um, and for the artists that we get them for, it's just kind of like, Hey, we did what you wanted us to do. You know, we've, we've achieved the goals and, you know, cause I would love to get something to happen for all the artists we have on the, uh, on our roster, but you know, it, it is a very competitive landscape on the music licensing side of things these days. Well, I would think so, and especially in Denver. I mean, you you opened a publishing company in Denver, and you constantly hear that, oh, if you want to do this, you got to be in L.A. If you want to do that, you got to be in Nashville. Um, and, And there's recording studios everywhere, right? There's not a town without a recording studio. But you started a publishing company in Denver. What have been some of the advantages and disadvantages of doing that? Oh, the advantages have just been, you know, accessing a you know, whole community of recordings, really, or artists that have recordings that you can use. And, and even then it's a, because, you know, we're kind of like the first pe- people to work with some of these artists on on the music publishing side of things and the music licensing side of things. You know, we've been able, you know, we're 100% cleared one stop only. So we, we only do, we only work with artists who own both copyrights and then can license them to us. So it's been really a beneficial because there's just a lot of artists who haven't, I guess known what they've what they have or what they own, um, and so therefore it's 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 been fairly easy to get that to the marketplace. Where sometimes in Nashville or L.A., you know, oh well, she's a writer and she signed to this publishing company, and you know, there's a little bit more red tape in in getting that full 100% clearance to go out and do business. Um, and yeah. So that's actually been really helpful, and you know, part of where I think is rewarding is just trying to expose people to go, hey, you you own these copyrights. You know, I had one. Uh, uh, a studio drummer who was who had a session that he booked for you know an artist and they canceled the session and so him and the guitar player is like let's just come in and jam and they come in and just jam on some cool like blues stuff all instrumental and I was like well what are you guys gonna do with this stuff they're like nothing and I'm like well, you do recognize you just created two copyrights right here right because this is all original jamming yes okay all right well you guys now are copyright owners congratulations and 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 it's been worked because some of the stuff was just so cool that once they figured out, okay, yeah, we can do this. We don't need an artist to create production music in a way, which is what they ended up doing. They've now gone on to do like two libraries and we've been able to kind of, you know, do a couple of, you know, get a couple syncs for them based on just purely that, that, you know, revelation, like, Hey, you, this isn't just, don't throw this away. You, you created copyrights, you know, at the fundamental level. I mean, that's where I try to get the understanding of music publishing is from the copyright level. And cause at, because on the at, in the marketplace, that's the most important conversation: is do you own the copyrights, a hundred percent, and are you you know able to go and license that to somebody who is very concerned about if you don't? Because <laughs> that's the worst thing that can happen is that you sync something that isn't a hundred percent cleared in the contracts, so that like oh the bass player who who co-wrote the song you know ten years ago hears it on the radio or sees it in a movie and goes I own that where's my money you know and so um, yeah. That's been that's been great, and, and, and in some senses we've been lucky because I even look at like you know, safe boating is no accident is a band that we want they we got one of their songs synced in that uh, Nocturne movie the Amazon film yeah I mean that album's like seven years old the band's been dead for four but yeah and and and, and, and I, that's what I was kind of frustrated me too was seeing you know all these effort put into these albums and then once the band died the album died but right you know in music licensing it's more about does the song fit the need and we you know here's the money we have yes or no and do you have the clearance 
and you know even on that album the the song that synced was like the sound the, the throwaway song an album cut you know nothing that was like the hit song if there was one on the album and but it fit the use for amazon and um you know that's that that's how it goes and that's why i try to even tell everybody you know hey if the band dies that's that's unfortunate for the live music side but there's still you know opportunities business opportunities beyond that you know and it really comes right. down does it fit the use and do you have somebody that can get it in front of the you know music supervisor to see if it does right. you know and um so there's been lots of advantages i guess the disadvantage is that we don't have those bands that have that you know like they're the hip band factor the you know the it band that that can charge a lot more for licensing you know purposes right um, sure and i think too it's been just tough to find bands that can do it all like i think you know from a music publishing side of things and even on the master recording side of things you want a band that can get streams that can get syncs and then can go play live because there's all revenues from that you know and Right. And just knowing how hard just from my own experience touring out of Denver, it's a it's maybe one of the worst places in the world to tour from. <laughs> sure. You're talking yeah. about eight hours each way to, you know, whether it's anywhere. Wichita or Salt Lake City, and then it's another eight hours yeah. somewhere else, you know. And so right. um but yeah, and I but that being said, I you know, before COVID I was really starting to see some momentum and I think you know, there's other people in Denver doing some great things that are helping out, and you know, that, and hopefully we can kind of carry that momentum. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, and that's the, the other, the only thing downside is just that people haven't really registered songs or are not into that side of the, of the business, you know. And, um, and so, what all the artists have to do before they approach you? I mean, they need to be uh, registered with a PRO as a songwriter and a publisher. Um, usually, just as a songwriter. Only in situations, okay. yeah. Gen- I mean, I, I would still recommend anybody to just get a publishing company, but for some people, at least just getting, you know, that's why, I like, if I could just get an artist sometimes to register, that's a huge win. Because <laughs> it okay. seems to be daunting sometimes. And, you know, I, I, give them, I, I was that artist, too, where I was just like, oh, what, you know, like, this is a pain in the ass. Yes, all administrative things are a pain in the ass. And in some senses, I think, too, the industry, it's, it's a way they, by making it harder, it's just, it is kind of a way sometimes to get those just people to step up and it, you know, participate in the administrative process. Nobody's going to find you and hand you a check, you know? Right. So, um, but yeah, that's kind of where, and, and that's why I'm all about enabling artists. Uh, you know, part of our business model is to not be the traditional publishing company that just takes rights in perpetuity, you know? So we, and I'm an artist still, I always still kind of see the business through the artist lens versus like through the music publishing lens you know and there's pretty different perspectives i would tell you between the two (laughs) right Um, right do artists need to have in terms of their requirements do they need to have um you know sent the music to the copyright office and gotten the big you know the fancy 65 dollar whatever it costs album copyright not that's not essential for us just because you know copyright laws it's dependent on fixation which is still you know like i think if we were to get i I still recommend it more of like if hey if you put a collection if you put an album out so that you can only pay a one-time fee instead of paying per song which just gets really expensive fast but um it's one of those things i think you know i think it's a good thing for an artist to do but it's not dependent of that you know our contracts always say uh you know it's not a requirement, but recommended. Um, but beyond that, it's it's more just having an argu- artist that's organized, you know, because like that's part of what we do is just handle a lot of the administrative stuff. But even then, I still recommend artists having a spreadsheet with all your songs in it, with all your um, ISRC codes, your IWSC codes, 
because I think it's just it's good business practice, you know, and and that's what the on the licensing and sync side is just imperative. You can't right, you know, especially because they the whole thing is it's like, well, if this stuff isn't in there and you don't have this together, BMI, ASCAP, CSAC can't pay you, and then we you're gonna blame me, you know. So it's again trying to get the artist to step up and just kind of take that responsibility. Um, but I think it also just kind of like encourages the idea of running a business, you know, and I think that sometimes in the music industry, people don't take it seriously to run a business. If you're out playing a live show, you are getting paid to do something. So therefore you are running a business. How about fill out some tax returns too? (laughs) So yeah, you got to do it all. You got to do it. And it's a pain in the ass, but you know, like it's so important down the line. And sometimes I feel like people miss opportunities because they didn't do it then, you know? Right. Right. And what's the process like um, for what's the process like for artists and for you from from start to finish? And I, I know most songs don't get placed. Right. But how do how do artists uh, submit songs or catalog to you guys? How do you filter through them? How do you pitch them and, and how do you get paid? Uh, I mean, we've kind of, you know, it's been just something, a part of like our just working relationship with artists that are recording at the Keep, where, you know, we have a pretty established relationship, and that's where it's been really easy for us to take those artists into the publishing company. We're being a little bit more discerning, you know, like, I think we're on like roster 3.0, and um, just because we now have an idea what the marketplace is looking for, um, which is, you know, generally pop, hip-hop is getting getting big in the sync side of things. But I also kind of take an approach, like there's kind of different aspects of what we're trying to do. First and foremost, we're just also on the base levels, get the songs registered. And so the publishing is in place for anything to happen. Um, Secondarily, then it becomes that process of, you know, we actually have a relationship with a company in Los Angeles that does the pitching for us called Spirit Production Music. Um, A gentleman by the name of Gary Helsinger is a guy we work with and he's, he, he pitches songs. Um, and he's been yeah. in the industry a long time, whether it's Tower Records or, you know, A&R. Um, so he's, you know, established in the industry because I found out real fast, you know, that's the one disadvantage, another disadvantage of being from Colorado is to just try to go out there and be like, hey, we're here too. And we have competitive music. And, you know, because it, it, it's just changed in the last 10 years where the business is focused on that side of the the fence or something, you know, that, that, that area, because there's actually revenue and there's actually dollars versus streaming, which is micro sense, you know? So, um, so that's where it kind of like yeah. we, you know, there's a lot of administrative things that happen that it takes for us to get to them. You know, you're talking about metadata and all these things that are really important to them that they rely on us to do. Um, so that's kind of part of the process. Um, and then, you know, and we're, slowly i think trying to again expose our artists to what the other industry like the rest of the industry does so in in part of that is to just you know tell people okay if you value this type of revenue for your music you might need to write lyrics that are aimed that way you know and so when you're right. making songs with these really personal lyrics it might lessen the chance of it getting licensed and synced i'm not saying one's way is better than the other but i just you know part of that is like hey just so you know, you know, because I, I've done enough pitch sessions now with, you know, people from Atlanta or South Africa and like, yeah. it is so competitive. I, and I, I'm blown away sometimes because like, and, and these people, they're, you know, they're not trying to be artists in a way. They're trying to derive revenue as, as, as a recording artist or something, you know, like a, you know, like 
specifically for licensing and sync. So when sure. you get these briefs, the lyrics are just like so dialed in on it, maybe even sometimes too on the nose, but that that might work for what the, the music supervisor is looking for. You know, again, it's all about sure. does it fit their use? And sometimes with, with you know, true music performing artists, that's not what they're thinking about. They're trying to write a song about their life, you know, and and so part of that is just, you know, like, and, and we're doing a lot more custom stuff in-house, I guess, with some of the songwriters that we have that is a little bit more directed towards that. But, you know, when it comes down to the artist side, I, I think it's, like I said, it's kind of in phases so that, A, first and foremost, the publishing is happening, the songs are registered. Secondly, it's, uh, you know, it is capable of going to the marketplace, but, you know, I'm not, some artists that I produce will have these conversations, but, you know, it's kind of not as important to us just because it is a Denver thing. You know, we're not out there competing against some of these guys who are just specifically writing for the sync marketplace, you know, and and some artists right. are getting that, you know, and that's, that's a tough conversation sometimes to have is to go, well, are you, which side of, are you on, are you on the more art side or are you on the more commerce side? Because the commerce side, then you like, again, if you know the competition, it's like cutthroat and people will change their lyrics. If, you know, somebody says, a music supervisor says, ah, this isn't working. Okay, I'll change it. Whatever you want, man. Just let me know. Oh, you don't like those synths? Here's the stems. Do whatever you need. I just want it to get synced and get that that money, you know? And so right. that's been even for me to learn and, and kind of what the artists we work with is like, that's why I kind of still like signing just regular, you know, performing artists just for that sake of, you know, having that potential. But then it's also like, that's right. why we're doing more stuff in-house that's really directed at it because... Directed at it. Yeah. Sometimes that's a feedback I get when I go to these pitch sessions. It's like, hey, the music sounds great. The album sounds great, but the lyrics just don't fit where we need it. You know, I need something uplifting or empowering, you know, and these songs are very personal to the songwriter, which I love. I mean, that's what, you know, kind of like, again, the, on the album making, say, making, you know, music for the sake of art, that's, that's what you're trying to do, you know, but that's... Right. And that's where it just at least to... To remind the songwriters and artists, hey, just to make sure, don't get your expectations too high here. Or, you know, the, sometimes it's like, why didn't I get this opportunity and I can be specific? It's like, you know, the look at what's out there and what's syncing. And even on the bigger artists, I think, you know, they're doing that because they're just, you know, you get one good sync with Pepsi, that pays for everything. You know, and right. it also brings people to your, just to listening to your music, you know. And, and it's been fascinating to see like production music artists now can cross over because they'll get something synced and they're like, Oh, people listen to this and they're putting their production music albums now on Spotify and you know, yeah, you know, and it's smart. I would do that too. But that's where it's like, they weren't coming from a place of trying to be anywhere like an, an authentic artist. They're not an artist. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're, they're writing for the pitch. Yeah. You um, know, and yeah. Which I can imagine is tough competition. If, if you're an artist, if you're a performing artist and that's, and that's your thing. Yeah. There's definitely a fork in that road and some people are able to do it really well, you know, like, Sometimes like U2 or some of these bands that are just super anthemic and, they, you know, it, it lines up really good. And, that you know, those are the big songs that continually get used, you know, for those opportunities. But, um, but that's why I try not to get too down that rabbit's hole because it is can be somewhat um, just detrimental to the work process when you start getting those conversations. You know, it's like well, is this going to sell on the sync side of things or what, you know? But, like, some artists right, want to have right. that. You know, I think that's why, like, I work with some artists who are all about making a living, and that's what you got to do, you know, versus yeah. being an artist and putting your art out there, you know, and playing shows. Like, there's definitely kind of a separate world in that in that uh, area. But there's still, but still plenty of crossover, though. Yeah, yeah, and are you guys exclusive 
for artists that you work with, can they can they then go pitch their music through another publishing company too? No, we're exclusive, but just around. It's not like we, you know, like uh, it's exclusive around recordings and songs. It's not like you know terms where we have like okay, we're we're exclusive, but we get every you know your first right of refusal on songs. Now we just do it around what's recorded, um, and then other full than, catalogs or single tracks or uh, probably more around albums. I would say um, okay. Not like catalogs. Again, mostly we're on that side of things. We're mostly just dealing with artists making albums and then taking that album to the marketplace. Right. Right. Um, well, that's that's really interesting stuff, and I love how you kind of went into the difference between just having an artist, you know, doing artist stuff, which is what I'm doing, right? And then uh, I, you know, when I go to the song, the Durango Songwriter Expo or wherever, right? You see people that are specifically pitching for this this kind of thing, this opportunity, here's what they are looking for right now. And I'm going to create that. Um, and it's interesting and it's brutal. And I, I think it makes every musician look in the mirror and say, what do I want to be? Who do I want to be? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how, and how am I going to approach it? Yeah. And, you know? and, and it's, it's, and that's kind of like, again, where I've just learned, you know, just going and taking songs to the marketplace and having to get kind of just, slap down a couple times and, and, and even just, you know, and I, I always appreciate industry people who are straight with me and just go, I mean, like even on certain songs, it's like, well, what is he saying in the chorus? Tell me what he's saying in the chorus. Can you, can you tell me exactly what he's saying in the chorus? And I'm like, uh, no. And, and it's like, you know, and, and even going to conferences has been really good. And, you know, and, and even trying to lead us to production music, because I feel like <sighs> production music is probably almost easier to make a dollar in, in the recording business than it is in on the artist side right now because there's more uses and even I feel like with production music it's composed for that use you know you're, you're talking about 30 seconds is your usual sync length right for a 30 second yeah. commercial and even 15 yeah. seconds so it's like having to chop down a song in 30 seconds can take me hours where if I get specifically something f- written for that I can just slide it in you know and that's why we're yeah you know, and, and, and what's also been really interesting is on production music side, I've worked with artists where it's, it's hey, it's your throwaway songs. I want your throwaway songs because that is dumbed down in some way that might work better for production music. And so that's been kind of cool. Yeah. And that's been something that, you know, again, trying to just like harvest the creativity because you know how it is. You're a songwriter. It's not like you can just wake up every morning and write a great song. I mean, right? who knows? You Like I would say, you got to write 30 songs to write one great one. But right. those twenty-nine other songs might be good to be formatted into a production music, you know, like piece, and 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 that's and that's where I kind of always like, how do we try to get the most out of what you're doing as an artist? And so and so that's been really cool seeing that happen, um, and 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 then it, it also kind of helps I think songwriters format a little bit more if they're trying to go for that dollar because when I go, hey, go listen on premium beat and listen to those tracks, like it is formatted to a T, you know, it's like, and even just being able to play the little loops, I think is really good for artists to kind of see, because that's, that's kind of where on my job, I'm trying to pitch to these people. And so when it's not like that, it's just more work. And even working with ad agencies or agencies as a whole, they, they need it to be efficient. They don't want to, you know, like, cause it, that's been tough sometimes pitching for 30 second, second commercials. It's like, all right, let's take the third chorus. How about that part right there? And, the, you know, and, and see what you vibe on other versus like they can go to premium beat and just, try the different loops under their video and go, okay, this works, you know, section A, you know, part three, you know, like, okay, I like all those synths or even, you know, cause that's been kind of 
what's interesting is that because we have the commercial recording studio, we work with agencies and do the production of these things where, you know, generally we don't even get a chance to pitch music, but we're taking the, you know, the tracks that they want to use and putting it under the, the voiceover and kind of just re- right. realizing how much time that can take sometimes for a song, you know? And, right. uh, and, and cause nobody as a songwriter, it's not like you're thinking about a 30 second clip when you're writing a song. Right. Right. And even then yeah, it's absolutely. mostly instrumental. Right. But, and that's and that's where it's been. I just have had learned in production music. I never even knew about production music until I kind of like started the music publishing side of things. Just because I was so heavily invested in in the artist side of music, you know. Yeah. Um, but going to those production music conferences, man, like there's 500 writers there, all making a living, you know, doing stuff. And even trailer music, you know, is like another g- good thing that we've you know we don't have anything in the catalog but my partner jeff mixes a lot of it and uh man what great money that is (laughs) to get a trailer you know because then you're talking about two minutes you know and and, and that's even a more creative i think you know uh, genre of music because you get a little bit more length in there yeah so before i before i let you go i wanted to ask you one more thing and i mean for for our audience too you've done all kinds of different things as we've definitely talked about over the last 45 minutes or so. Um, but I mean, you've, you worked on, uh, an album for Los Lobos and two and in 2010 and got two Grammy nominations. Um, you've done front of house for Nathaniel Rateliff, all, all kinds of, uh, the list goes on and on. One thing that I found interesting about your resume is some of the people that you've worked with remotely. You've done remote, uh, recordings with, uh, Sonny Landreth, you know, amazing, amazing yeah. slide guitar player, uh, 21 Pilots, Blackberry Smoke, Moby. Um, what is that process like and how is that different? I know we do so much remote recording now anyway, but how is that process different when you're working with an artist not in person? Well, I guess those those would be more live remote recordings, you know, so we're there um, just capturing, which is definitely uh, a whole different beast, you know, and yeah. Uh, I was before kind of like in between Macy working at Macy Sound Studio and then Jeff and I having our own business. I, I worked for Colorado Sound, so I engineered up there a little bit for Kevin Clock. Um, just kind of filling in. It was never meant to be, you know, full time thing. But that's where I got to do some. I mean, he's the king of remote recording in Colorado with his recording truck. So that's been a lot of fun. I don't know. It's it's high pressure, high stakes. I'll tell you that. You know, like you can't mess yeah. up in those situations. And I love that. I mean, I kind of that's why. I've always loved being able to do front of house mixing too because it's it's in the moment and there you ha- there's no going you know you can't stop and take another take you know there's definitely a safety in recording studios that I enjoy too but I also you know like front of house to me is just it, it's pure engineering you know even on the, even on the remote side of things um, but yeah. this you know and it's just so like we, like Blackberry Smoke and like the clutch uh show that I did you know there was when Access TV was doing those live shows and they're they have an HD truck in there you know and it's like just such big productions which is you know kind of ner- unnerving just because you you know everything's got to go right and it's got to go live you know and so yeah, I kind of yeah. like that pressure <laughs> you know it's like the pressure that just keeps you up at night but then you know once you get a show done it's that reward at the end of it going like all right everything went smooth and um you know there's always just little things that come up and you know like uh the opio show i did with colorado sound too which was a fun one but like you know some of the monitor speakers weren't working for the symphony and it's like kind of snowing and you know and just like 
just lots of you know you got it just has to happen then so i really love that part of the business where you know there's no going back and uh, sure you can't second guess yourself it's it's no but have you ever messed up uh i mean royally messed up a live recording where you've had to talk to the artist be like hey man that didn't that didn't come out as expected well it, or just didn't record <laughs> uh yeah there was like a <laughs> oh, no. there's this band the swayback that we did live at red rocks and and that's where it was a reminder that you just you have to prepare for the worst possible situations and do everything you can to make sure that doesn't happen which was like somebody tripping over a cable behind there and just completely unplugging the recording system so you know and lost like two songs so uh, and that's that's a tough conversation because it's not like, hey, uh, can you just go back out and play those again? No, they're gone. <laughs> they, they did not yeah. get recorded. Somebody in the crowd might have it on their phone, but uh, that's a, that was again another reminder why it's just, you know, you can't mess around with anything like that, you know. And even the Moby show, like there was some technical stuff before that went down, and that was a VR recording too, which so it had it kind of added element with the cameras, um, which fortunately worked out beforehand. But that was like a you know, race to figure out how to make make things work till like just before showtime because <laughs> they had so many input yeah. lists at that show is at the Fonda Theater and just it, and and on that side of things it was actually just me interfacing with their crew and making sure everything was good and they you know things did not go smooth at sound check and you know all these things that can sometimes just like really make things tough but luckily. You know, you just got to have faith that it'll work out. And even then, you know, like constantly just trying to make things work up until, I mean, even through a show sometimes, <laughs> you know, like yeah. bad cable. Okay. Or, you know, hopefully you've got a bad cable or a mic or something like that, or even speakers exploding on stage. You know, there's always just these variables that I love about live sound. And, that sounds like, I, I, I don't know if I would love those things about him. You're, you're a special personality. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's that, but it's gotten a lot easier. You know, you're not doing it on tape machines and, and remote trucks anymore, you know, and that's why, like, right, there's a lot right. of redundancy now, <laughs> thankfully, with digital recording, you know, where you can record to two, spit, two spots. So that, you know, and even just like you're not having to call copper all the way to the stage these days with Cat 5. I mean, that's why there is a total faith in digital recording to have that work, but when it's working, it's, it's definitely a lot, lot less work and suffering versus what it was like yeah. 10, 15 years ago. Sure, sure. Well, thanks so much for your time. If you don't mind, stay on the line with me for one sec, yeah. but I'll, I'll yeah, say goodbye to the audience. Me. And yeah. <laughs> All right, my conversation with Nick Sullivan. Nick, thanks so much for joining me. I do appreciate your time and expertise, and it was great, uh, great connecting and chatting. Folks, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, hate mail, death threats, you can direct them to me middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. Once again, if you'd like to support this podcast in a monetary way, I'm now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Andy Sido, S-Y-D-O-W. You can get exclusive content and live streams, and you can join for as little as $3 per month. If you can't support in a monetary way, that's totally fine. Please give this podcast five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to learn anything else about Nick or follow up about recording in his studio or anything like that, I've included that in the show notes. That's all I've got for you this week. Tune in next time, and I'll chat with you then. Thanks. Mm-hmm.